We're in James chapter 3 tonight, and I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 12, and most likely we'll finish the chapter after that, but we're going to stop at verse 12 in our first section of unpacking it. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things." How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison." With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, Going back to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we will, who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We've already covered this verse in many times in previous studies, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much tonight, except to remind you that God is the one who determines what our roles are and appoints us to our roles in the body of Christ. And we should not assume a role that has not been given to us. We've talked about this a lot. Don't seek to be teachers of the Word of God unless God's called you and gifted you to teach. But Jim, aren't we to share the Word of God? Yes, we are. But be careful of taking the role of authority. Teacher. Well, let me help you out with that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 11, and then we'll look at verses 18 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Jump to verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members of the parts in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So look closely at what Paul's saying here. In the body of Christ, we all have different roles. And there are those who are going to preach, and there are those who are going to teach, 
And there are those who are going to serve, and there's going to be those who give. And we should all do a lot of all of that stuff. As there are those who are gifted with mercy. Does that mean those of us who don't have the gift of mercy aren't to show mercy? Of course not. So yes, there are going to be times God is going to use you to share biblical truth and to share what God has shown you. Just be careful of deciding you're going to become a teacher of the Word of God. Oh, and by the way, with social media today, that has just opened the door for so many people that all of a sudden now think that's their calling when it's not. And one of the things you have to be real careful about now today is that you have the ability. You know, back in the day before the Internet, if anybody wanted to study the Word of God or to look at, they'd have to have a library and commentaries and what does Matthew Henry say or what does this person say? Nowadays, you can just Google and research any topic. The problem is, how do you know what they're saying out there is biblical? And if you've ever done any searching, you'll know there's a lot of wacky stuff out there and a lot of people that want to be teachers. You've got to be careful to know what the Word of God says so you know who you're going to listen to or not listen to. And at the same time, uh, let God deal with them when it's time, but don't make that your Role In John chapter 3, we're not going to turn there, in verses 26 through 30, uh, they came to John the Baptist and they said, um, don't you realize that the guy that you bore witness to, the one you baptized over there, uh, he's baptizing now and everybody's going to him. And John the Baptist wonderfully said this. He said, a man can only receive what he's been given from above. My role was to prepare the way for him. The friend of the bridegroom is excited when he sees the bridegroom come. Now he must increase and I must decrease. He had an understanding that he had been given a very important role. But once Jesus came on the scene, his role was to diminish. And he was to point people to Jesus. He wasn't to gather his own following. Actually, we see in the Gospel of John that upon pointing to Jesus and say, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, two of John the Baptist's disciples stopped following John and went to become disciples of Jesus. And John didn't have a problem with it because he understood what his role was. Folks, the sooner we understand the role that God's given us, the happier we'll be. And again, I pointed this out to you in the past. Again, we're not going to dwell on chapter 3, verse 1 much longer. But in Romans chapter 3, verses, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, Paul says, I say by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each one with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. And he says, if your gift is this, if, use it. If, it's gift, if your gift is this, use it. If your gift is prophesying, use it in proportion to your faith. In other words, just because two people have been called by God to preach, that doesn't mean that they're both supposed to preach in the same kind of settings and situations. Some are gifted to preach in larger settings. Some are gifted to preach in smaller settings. Some are gifted to teach young people. Some are gifted to teach older folks. Some are gifted to teach people that are new in the faith. Others are gifted to teach people that are deeper in the faith. You need to understand that you don't determine what your role is in the body of Christ. The problem is you're going to see in the book of James is that he was dealing with people who were more interested in exalting themselves and becoming leaders in the church. As I've jokingly said for years, everybody in the choir wants to sing the solo. One of the problems we have in our churches today, by the way, is the fact that a lot of churches don't understand this, and they wonder why the associate pastor won't get up some gumption and become a senior pastor one day. Why is that youth pastor still doing youth work? Doesn't he realize he could move up the ladder? But the churches that function well and thrive are the churches that have many different pastors, and they all understand their gifting and their role, and they're happy where God wants them to be. 
The unhealthy ones are the churches that have all the associates waiting for the day they get to preach. So I want to just challenge you. Let God show you what your role is and be satisfied with that. If he wants to move you up the ladder, let him do it in his time. Now, in verses 2 through 6, though, go back to James chapter 3. In verses 2 through 6, James continues his admonition about wanting to all become teachers to teach on the deeper issue of our tongues and how much power they have and how much damage they do, even though they're small. Look at James chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member or a small part, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body parts, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now, every time I read this passage for the rest of my life, I'll remember something that happened to me when I was a young preacher and I was in seminary. Um, I was associate pastor of a big church, and whenever churches in Louisiana, southeast Louisiana, wanted to have a preacher come fill the pulpit, they would contact our church because they knew we had eight pastors on staff, and they would ask for certain pastors to come and preach. And a lot of times they would ask for me to come and preach. And so one Sunday I traveled somewhere in Louisiana, down in the oil country, to go preach at this country church somewhere. And there were a lot of things that were happening that Sunday that I still remember. That was back when I used to wear three-piece suits all the time, too, because that was just expected that the preacher wore a three-piece suit. And it was so hot in that church there in that, sun, that Sunday in, in Louisiana, and the air conditioner wasn't working. And all the church members took time going up to the front and messing with the thermostat, and nobody realized that the heat was on. Is that what was the real problem? And by the time I finished preaching that Sunday, I had soaked through my jacket. But that's not what I'm going to remember when I read this passage. What I'm going to remember is the fact that a lady came that Sunday and she had a children's sermon. She came and asked all the kids to come down to the front. She sat on the steps of the pulpit area and she had with her a model of a boat and she had a horse's bit and she had a little uh, match. And she talked to these kids in a loving way and she said, see this big old ship? It's turned around by this little rudder. Do you see this little piece of metal here? It's a horse's bit. And you put this in the mouth of that big thousand pound animal and you can turn it wherever you want with this little piece of metal. Oh, and you see this little match? You can just strike a little spark with this match and you could set a blaze in a forest fire. And she sat there and she said to the kids, she said, you may think your tongue is a small thing, but it's very powerful and it can do a lot of damage. Well, when the service was over, I walked up to her and I said, that was awesome. That was one of the best children's sermons I've ever heard. And those illustrations that you used, the, the rudder on the ship and the horse's bit and the, and the spark, where did you get those? Those are awesome. And she looked at me with big eyes and she said, uh, James chapter 3, preacher? <laughs> My tongue showed how little I knew of the Bible at that time. It was a very humbling experience as I stood there and said, I've never heard that before. That is amazing. Where did you get that? And she goes, um, right here. 
It's kind of like the guy that came up to me one Sunday when I was a pastor in Chicago, and he was after the church, and he didn't like praise songs. And he said, he goes, I don't like this new music. That, that song we sang today, As the Deer Pants for the Streams of Water, who wrote that crap? That's what he said. I said, um, King David. And I showed him where it was in the Psalms. And he goes, oh, I put my foot in my mouth, haven't I? I said, yeah, you kind of did. But join the club. We've all done it, haven't we? We've all shown what was going on inside, good or bad, ignorant or whatever. And James is wanting us to understand that even though your tongue is small, it can do a lot of damage. Now, we've already seen a little bit earlier in our study of the book of James the importance of being slow to speak. But I hope you realize that the real problem doesn't lie in your tongue, but in what's behind it. When James is using this illustration of the tongue being the problem, he's actually continuing a very common theme and use in the Bible. This is a common way of describing sin in Jewish writings by assigning the problem to a certain body part. I don't know if you've ever caught this or not, but it's going to be kind of a fun little thing to chase. So go with me to Romans chapter 3. Remember, James is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who have come to faith in Jesus, and most of them have, some haven't, but they say they have. And James is writing to this group of folks, and he continues a very common use in Jewish writing. In, in Romans chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, again, Paul's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their excuse me, feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. All right, so in this passage, he's blaming all this on these body parts. Are they really the problem? No. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 14. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 14 says this. They have eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Let me give you one more. Go to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Do you see how he's blaming all these problems on the body parts? That's not the real issue. The real issue is not your tongue. You still have the problem. Very good. It's your heart. All the tongue does is release what's in your heart. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Go to Isaiah chapter 6 and look at verse 5. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. Isaiah has just seen the Lord and, he's, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say undone. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, is it his lips that are the problem? No. Go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verses 10 and 11. In Matthew 15, verses 10 and 11, Jesus, he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. All right. Now jump over to chapter 15, verses 15 through 20. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Go to Luke chapter 6. It's even more clear here. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Jesus says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So we've already seen here, though, that the real issue is not our eyes or our tongue or all that kind of stuff. The real issue is our heart. And that's the, that's the part of us that needs to be fixed. James now goes on to say that since the tongue is the main area that our sinfulness reveals itself, he says, don't be fooled by its small size and think that your problem is small. But then he goes on, go back to chapter 3 and look at what he says, though. He not only says that it's a small part, but it does a lot of damage. He says in verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, or body parts, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by what? By hell. Now he's not saying that we're not accountable for what it does or what it reveals but that the wickedness that it reveals is the same wickedness that Satan and demons possess and what hell was created for. In other words, he wants you to really understand how serious this problem is. This tongue problem that we have of saying things about people to slander them, and by the way, we've all done that. We have a tendency sometimes to build ourselves up by tearing someone else down, even if it's subtle. Even if it's couch, couched in, I'm only telling you this because I want you to know how to pray. But let me tell you about Mary. You understand? The heart is what's really driving what you say. And it's really not that you want that person to pray for that person. You want that person to hear how that person's not so good. And in the same way, because I'm sharing with, this you, for you, with you and I'm concerned for this person, that shows how good I am. We got to be careful. We got a problem. And he says, it is set on fire by hell. Now, 
Go to Matthew chapter 25 and look at just one verse, verse 41, and look closely at how Jesus describes hell. In Matthew 25, verse 41, there's lots of descriptions of hell. Actually, Jesus talked about hell three times as much as he talked about heaven. But in Matthew 25, verse 41, he, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? Devil and his angels. When God created hell, it was created for Satan and his angels, the demons that fell and left their position with Satan when Satan tried his rebellion in heaven. And that's who hell was created for. But then Satan, after he had his rebellion, comes to the earth and he tempts mankind. And all mankind fell for it. And we all became followers of Satan. And that's why Jesus says to the Pharisees even, your father is the devil. We're all children of wrath until we have been made right through Jesus Christ and are born again to a new living way through faith in Jesus Christ. And we're made new in our spirits. But even though we are made new in our spirits, God in his plan and his wisdom has left us in these human bodies which are still decaying and still under the curse and even though we've been made alive in our spirit, as we've already looked at late, earlier in our study of Romans, we still wrestle with the flesh, do we not? We still wrestle with the fact that even though I know better, even though I actually want to do right, that I got this problem, I got this law, Paul says, that's at work here. At the same time that my inner man wants to obey the law of God, I got my flesh that wants to do its own thing. And do you know why God has left us in these human bodies between now and when he comes and gets us and we get our new bodies. And by the way, can't we wait to get out of these new bodies? Not because my knees are bad and my back's bad. But honestly, because I won't have to fight the flesh anymore. The power of sin's been defeated in my life. I don't have to yield to it. But its presence is still there. Has anybody thought about why? Why does he leave us in these human bodies that are still under the curse and still dying and still wrestling against the Spirit of God? The flesh doesn't want to do the will of God. The Spirit of God within us wants to. Why did he leave us in these human bodies? Well, it's not, not just not time yet. There's way more to that. So that we would rely on him. He's done it on purpose so that we would choose and have to choose on a daily basis to walk with him. He could have just saved us, made us new. And then we would have just done our own thing. Oh, when we get out of these bodies, though, we'll love him and worship him and be in his presence. But between now and then, he has left it so that you and I can choose on a daily basis whether we're going to follow the flesh or follow the spirit. He's actually given us an opportunity in these bodies to worship him. By the way, I know I'm, I'm not going to ask you this question. I know the answer you're still tempted to do certain sins. There are some that you still do. There are some that you struggle with more than others. But let me say this to you. That is your opportunity to worship the Lord. That is your opportunity when the temptation comes to say, Lord Jesus, I choose you over the flesh. I choose you over the enemy who's tempting me. But it's not just the enemy. It's already there. It's already in me. Remember, we've already seen earlier in James chapter 1, when someone is tempted, they're lured away by their own desires that are already there. And so, folks, I want to just encourage you to understand this problem of sin that we still wrestle with. Don't think it's small. Don't think it's light. 
I, I don't want to start preaching my messages for the, the church in Galax, but as I've been writing these series of messages of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation, five of the seven churches he wrote to and said, Repent, or I'm going to come and remove your lampstand, or I'm going to come fight against you with the sword of my mouth. You have allowed sin to creep in, and then in this church it's being taught. Oh, don't get me started about what's going on in the church today and how we allow things that we should not. Again, I'm going to let these churches know, by the way, when I preach at this church coming up, I'm not preaching to that church. I'm preaching to the individuals in the church. Because I honestly think the best way to study the messages to the churches in Revelation is not to have, well, let's just see how our church looks. No, 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 because you'll be too busy looking at everybody else. Instead of letting the Spirit of God speak to you, one of the things God opened my eyes to as I've been studying this is the fact that throughout the letters to the churches in Revelation, he was speaking to individuals, not the churches. He said, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, but to the messenger of the church, to the messenger of the church, to he who has an ear to hear, to he who has an ear to hear, to anyone that will open the door, I'll come in. He's speaking to individuals. I know those of you that haven't fallen prey to this lady's teaching. I'm going to tell you to hang on. Oh, the others in the church who have fallen prey, you better repent or I'm going to destroy you when I destroy her. All these messages, even though to the churches, he was speaking to the individuals. And tonight he says the same thing to us. Don't take lightly the sin that your tongue is still revealing. Let the Lord have control. That leads us back to James chapter 3, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Now, this is a very interesting thing. I'm going to chase something here. It's not in my notes. But I'm going to chase it real quick. At this point, Leviathan doesn't exist anymore. But there was an animal back in prior to the flood called Leviathan, and he was a fire-breathing dragon. Sorry, not prior to the flood, but after. And it was a fire-breathing dragon, because <coughs> Job lived around the time of the patri patriarchs. And so we have, in, in, in Job, we have this fire-breathing dragon, which God says to, to, to Job is so powerful, no human being can handle it. And who was the one that killed Leviathan? It was God. The Bible actually says he's the one that killed him. And so that animal's gone. But he made an animal that represented Satan. And by the way, you want to know that it's proof that he represents Satan? You go to the end of chapter 40 of Job when he's describing Leviathan, and he's described in this way. He said, and he's father of all who are proud. Well, how could just an animal be father of all who are proud? That animal was a fire-breathing dragon, which, by the way, how is Satan described in the book of Revelation? A dragon. With all the heads and all this stuff, just like we see in the book. By the way, the Bible tells us that Leviathan had more than one head. If you do a full study on the Leviathan, you'll see it. It's, a, it's an animal that God created that was a picture of Satan that no man could touch, and God destroyed him to show that he's the only one that can handle him. So at this point, when James writes this, he says, every other human animal has been tamed by humankind, and, and, and so on. He said, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, I thought our tongues weren't the problem. What's the real problem? All right, go to Jeremiah 17. 
Go to Jeremiah 17. Look at verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. NIV puts it beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So now we've learned that no one can tame the tongue. You know why no one can tame the tongue? Because nobody can fix their heart. That's the real problem. How many of you have thought to yourself, I'm going to do better? How'd that work out for you? No one can fix the heart. It's beyond cure. Oh, if it's beyond cure, what do we need then? A heart transplant. And that's what God promises to those of us who trust him as Savior. He'll give us a new heart. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, look at verses 26 and 27. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Now, in the midst of this promise to the nation of Israel and how in the last days he's going to bring them back and he's going to vindicate himself through them. Remember, all these promises for Israel are now ours in Jesus Christ. That's one thing Paul revealed, which was a mystery, hadn't been revealed, and that the promises for Israel are, are ours in the church now. And he says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, a lot of us read this like at that time, the Jews are just going to walk around like robots. No, no, no. He's going to remove their sin as he's promised. He's going to sprinkle them with clean water. He's going to put his spirit within them. He's going to give them a new heart. And he is going to cause them and to obey his commands, but they still are going to have to do it by faith. In the same way that you and I do. You know the Bible, you've heard me quote this passage many, many times. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it talks about the fact that it's God who actually will cause us to do good works. It's God, direct, in chapter 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. As new believers, as those who have followed Christ and trusted him as our savior, he's erased our sin. He's sprinkled us with clean water, if you will, washed us clean. He's put a new spirit within us, his spirit within us, and he's given us a new heart. We're a new creation. I'm going to read that to you in just a little bit. But he's made us new and he's given us a new heart. And now in our inner man, we all love the law of God when before we didn't. We didn't like it. Oh, by the way, how does the world today feel about truth? They hate it. They don't want it. Oh, we may not always obey it. But those of us who have been born again, we've been given a new heart. We love truth. We just got a problem. We still got some flesh that fights against it and doesn't want to do the will of God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, but if you learn how to daily offer your body as a living sacrifice, he'll show you his will. And by his grace, if you yield to him, he will cause you to obey his commands. Second Corinthians chapter five. I want you to listen closely to how Paul describes the, the new creation. Second Corinthians chapter five. We'll start in verse 11. He says, therefore, 
knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, before we get any further, Paul's having to defend himself. There are people out there that are saying he's not really an apostle and, and all this stuff. And he's had to defend himself many times in this letter. And so what he says here is this. He says, look, we know that we're doing things out of the heart and out of the right way. And we hope that your consciences will realize that. All right. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. In other words, if you think we're crazy, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Did you catch that? He causes us to obey his commands because we have concluded that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So for those of us who are in Christ, and we're going to keep reading here, for those of us who are in Christ, we're not to live for ourselves anymore. We're to live for him. Oh, and even though our flesh doesn't want to do that, deep down you do, don't you? I'm just going to ask you an honest question. If you're a born-again believer, don't you deep down want to obey God? Isn't that the desire of your heart? It really is. But he's made it so that you then would turn to him and say, Lord, just like I received you by faith to be saved, I need to yield to you by faith on a daily basis for you to live this through me. And every day is another opportunity throughout the day to worship him and to yield to him. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. But look closely. Look at verse 16. He says something very interesting. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this is what he says. He says, we don't look at anybody now according to the flesh anymore. We either see them as saved and in Christ or lost in need of Christ. You understand? We're not going to judge people by their actions or anything like that. We look at them as new creations or still in the old flesh. We used to think Jesus was just a man. We don't do that anymore. Isn't that what he said? We used to view Christ that way. We don't do that anymore. We used to think he was just a man, but we realize now he was not just a man. And therefore, if any of us are in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So now, as I preach and I teach to you, and, and you tell me you're a, new, a believer in Jesus Christ, I say to you, live out of your new nature then. And if... Those people in the world who don't know God are acting in the way they act. We should see them for how they are. They don't know any better. They can't do any better. But how often do we look at the world and get frustrated with the world and angry at the world and the wickedness of the world? And I can't believe he said that. And look at these politicians and all that they're doing. Folks, they're doing the best they can. If you still struggle, even though you've been made new, think how hard it is for them without Christ. You'd be surprised they haven't gone further. Oh, and they will. Unless they turn to him. 
That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners to repentance. That's why Jesus said, the people who are healthy don't need a doctor. It's only the sick people that need a doctor. But what he was saying was, the whole world's sick. The whole world's unrighteous. It's only those who acknowledge it are going to respond and receive it. And we need to keep that in mind as we talk to people about Jesus. Either they are in Christ and we encourage them to live out of their new nature and yield to the Spirit of God. Or they are outside of Christ and we just pray that they would yield to Jesus and understand their sickness. But we've got to stop looking at them as just humans, whether you're in Christ or not. And that will hopefully give you more compassion for the people around you. All right, Jim, so... You say, I've been given a new heart and a new spirit. Why do I still struggle with sin? Now, we've already touched on this a little bit. Can you answer it yet? If you've been given a new heart and a new spirit, why do you still struggle with sin? Because we're still here, and he's left us in these human bodies for what? To seek him, to yield to him. That's why he says, come to me, follow me. He doesn't want to just take the magic wand, boop, make John a new believer, and then walk on. We'd love that, but then we'd go do our own thing. He's made it so that we have to every day wake up and say, Lord, I need you. He said, yeah, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. I want you to follow me. I created you for a relationship with me. I didn't create you so that I could just save you and then let you run your own thing. I created you to walk with me and learn from me. You come to me, you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come and learn to me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, but this is a process. This is going to be a journey. And I have a purpose and a plan. Go to Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you catch that? He sees himself as a new creation. He's died to his old way. And the life he now lives, even though he's still in the body, he lives by faith in Jesus. Lord, pretty much Paul says this. He, he says, Lord, there's only been one Christian life that's ever been lived. And you lived it. But you want to live it again through me today. And tomorrow. And the next day. Lord, I want the world to see you today. The only way they're going to see you is I say no to my flesh and yes to you. Oh, Lord, my temptations are strong. Oh, Lord, I got a heart that you said is new, and I'm going to take you at your word. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. I've heard too many Christians say about their struggle with sin, Well, I'm only human. No, you're not. You're superhuman. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But I still struggle with temptation. Yes, but... You are new. How do we know that we're new? <laughs> because you struggle, that's a part of it. Let's, let's go even more simple. How do you know that you're a new creation? I heard someone say it. Because Jesus said so. 
Folks, that should be enough. If Jesus said you're a new creation, you're a new creation. If he said he's going to give you and has given you a new spirit and a new heart, you have a new spirit and a new heart. When you sin now, you're not sinning because that's your nature. You're now sinning against your nature. You're a new creation. Now, the longer it takes us to finally let this sink in and receive it by faith, the longer we're going to have this wrestling match and lose. But I say to you, and James says to you, you want to have an idea of how well you're doing in this living by faith in what he's promised and what he said he's done? Let your thought process in your tongue show you where you're at. This battle is not one that can be won or lost in our flesh or by our own strength, but by yielding to God's spirit within us and living out of our new nature. Now look at verses 9 through 12 of James 3. These next set of verses continue James's teaching on how to examine if we're living out of our flesh or out of our new spirit. Look at what he says here. He talks about our tongue. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. By the way, if you were still lost, you're just doing the best you can, and that's all you're going to do. But he says, no, it shouldn't be that way now, my brothers. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. One of the best measurements of whether or not we're letting Christ live his life through us will be how we speak and how we think. Are you worried? Do you have fear? Do you have anxiety? Do you have anger? Do you have jealousy? Do you have coveting? Do you have love? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Do you have patience? Do you have kindness? Do you have self-control? This is actually going to be a great way to see if Jesus is really in you. Because if you don't see any evidence of God's Spirit in you, you most likely don't have Him in you. But this is a great way to find out if you're really saved. Lord, you said, and I want you to take over. Lord, I believe what you've promised, and I'm going to act like it's true. I want to see this. You promised that you'd control me, that you would cause me to act the way I'm supposed to, you'd cause me to live the way I'm supposed to. I'm going to have a daily struggle. I'm not going to allow the enemy to make me question my salvation because I'm still tempted. Jesus, you were tempted right up to the cross. That's a part of being human is to be tempted, but to give in all the time is not for those who are in you, and I don't want to give in. Therefore, show your power. And folks, let me tell you from a young man who spent too much of his life trying to stop sinning. Once I started to focus on Jesus and not focus on my sin or focus on trying to stop sinning, but focused on Jesus, I would look back and go, I, I didn't fall to that. You understand? My focus was on my new nature, the new heart. Believing what he promised. If I were to say to you, if you died today, would you go to heaven? I'm pretty sure most of you would say yes, and you wouldn't think about it. Well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Because he said so. Well, can you live a new life by the power of the Spirit? Can the one who raised Jesus from the dead, who lives within you, give power to your mortal body? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Well, believe it just as much as you believe that you're going to heaven. And learn how to... Let that truth sink in. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1.
I love this. Second Peter chapter one, look at verses three and following. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So in other words, you've already received everything you need who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Did you catch what he said? His divine power has already given you everything you need. You don't need a special preacher to lay hands on you and pray for you. You actually have Jesus living within you and you've got all of the power you need. You now need to learn how to take hold of the promises. And by the way, how do we take hold of the promises? By faith. We believe them and we act like it's true. Oh, but look what he says next. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, that you already said, I know I'm going to heaven, with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, look closely, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you catch what he said? He said, now that you've been saved, now start taking that same amount of faith and putting it into all the promises that God has made and work on adding to your faith these evidences of the Spirit. Patience and kindness and self-control and brotherly love. Believe that he's going to do that just as much. And if you have these qualities and they are increasing, it's going to keep you from being ineffective. Oh, and some of you are saved. But that's as far as you ever got. And you're so nearsighted and blind, you don't know all that you still have that's available to you. It's right there, but you can't see it. If I didn't have my contacts in. I couldn't tell you if you were male or female. It's right there. You just can't see it. In the same way, if you're in Christ, it's all right there. You just have to believe it. Oh, the, if you fail on a certain test or have a day when the flesh wins, does that mean you're not saved? No, it means you're learning how to walk. I haven't used this illustration in years, but I don't know how far the camera angle goes here. Door to door, inside the door or outside the door? How about now? Are we all right? You remember when your kids used to learn to walk? You remember when they first started learning to walk? You'd like set them up on their feet and they'd furniture walk a little bit, but you'd realize, hey, it's almost time for them to learn to walk. And you would stand the kid up and you'd balance them up on their feet and you'd back away and you'd say, come on, walk to me. And if you remember, your kid would have this look on his face like, I'm not touching anything. And they'd be all excited. And they'd go and take a first step. And maybe a second one. And eventually, around the third, they'd fall on their rear end, wouldn't they? And do you remember what you did? You ran up and you kicked him in the head. You said, you stupid kid. What's wrong with you? Why can't you walk? 
No, what you did was you ran and you picked them up and you hugged them. You dusted their bottom off. You stood them back up and you said, I'm so excited that you're trying to walk. Let's give it another shot. And that's what our heavenly father does for his children who are his. Oh, the enemy comes in and says, oh, he's really upset with you. God says, no, actually, you're trying. I want you to learn how to walk with me in faith in this. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a journey. But I'm excited about it because you're learning to walk. Folks, it's time that we live out of our new nature. Brother, coarse jesting. Bad language. I could go on and on, let the Spirit tell you the rest, but let me just say these things ought not to be so. Can a fresh pond also produce salt water? It shouldn't be that way. Does that happen with some of us who are in Christ? Yes, but it shouldn't be. And if the Spirit of God pricks your heart, you say, Lord, here's an area that I want to learn to let you have control. Go to James chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3. I know you can't believe it. We're going to get a whole chapter done in one day. James chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 18. What I just said to you now is exactly what James is saying here in the very next verses. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Remember how it's from hell? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, James is about to, and we come in back in two weeks. Remember, no Bible study next week. He's about to come in chapter four and chastise and rebuke the church, this, the people here that he's writing to, who were talking a good game, but their actions weren't matching up with their words. Now, we all still struggle with sin in our flesh and evidences of it, like I've said, but humbling ourselves and allowing God to cleanse us from sin that has crept into our lives and living a life of repentance and confession and humility will allow God to work in our lives and confirm our salvation. Look at what he says here. He says, who's the real wise and the understanding among you? These are the ones that are actually walking in the spirit. In the meekness of wisdom, by the way, meekness is strength. Under control. You want a good definition of meekness? It's strength under control. Who was the best example of that? Jesus. Even though he was God, and it shows the power that he had when they came to arrest him, and he said, who have you come for? And they, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he didn't just say, I am he. That's what our translations, they add the word he. He said the two words, I am. And when he said, I am, John 18 tells us they all fell backwards. Does he have a little bit of authority and a little bit of power? But he yielded himself and he let them take him. 
Meekness is strength under control. Christians, you got to stop saying things like, well, I demand my rights. We do have rights here in America, and that's true, but sometimes Jesus tells us to lay them down for his cause, for his sake. And we have to know when. One time, Paul said, are you allowed to be a Roman citizen? And they quickly backed away, but in another instance, he let them beat him, even though it was a Roman colony of Philippi. He didn't pull out his Roman citizen card. In one instance, he was stoned and left for dead outside the city, and he got up and walked right back in the city. You want to talk about some guts. But another time, as they were coming to kill him, in Damascus, he was lit out of the city in a basket, out the wall, and snuck out in the middle of the night. We've got to learn how to walk in the Spirit and not live by our policies and our principles and what we think is right. That may appear to the world as wisdom. Who's really wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there's going to be disorder and every vile practice. By the way, before I close with what's left in this passage, I'm reading this and I'm picturing Paul's letter to the churches in Corinth. Remember what the problem was in the church in Corinth? Division. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. They weren't even having the Lord's Supper together. They weren't even sharing with each other. And the whole point was a coin and email, and they didn't want anything to do with each other. And on top of that, there was a man in the church who was sleeping with his father's wife. And everybody in the church thought it was all right because he's a good giver. Or he's a deacon, and he's very well respected. Or his family's been in this church for a long, long time. Whatever list I ate, what the real reason was, but I've seen a bunch of it. Let me just tell you, this church was a mess. And you know what? Paul had to write to the church in Corinth dealing with their worship because everybody had a message, and everybody had a song, and nobody was waiting for anybody else. And everybody pretended to be spiritual, but they were jockeying for position. And folks, I hate to say it, but that sure looked like most of the churches I've grown up in in my life. You don't believe me? Sit in on a business meeting. James says, you think you're a spiritual person? Control your tongue. I think my tongue's fine. Let the Spirit talk to you then. Then he closes with this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Man, we could take an hour and open to reason. How many of us are willing to actually sit and listen? Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When you walk out of a room, do people feel like the room was better because you were in it? Or do, they, or do you walk out of the room and they say, 
he or she won? Because a lot of us are more interested in winning than we are about leaving the place better than when we first came in. But Jim, you don't know the kind of people I'm dealing with. And, and if they win, I mean, we got to win. If they win, I think God's got it under control, doesn't he? Has he already written how it's all going to play out? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Yet we feel like we've got to do something. Oh, we're to act when God tells us to, but we act by faith and we leave the results to him. And most of the time he says, let it go. But I'm not supposed to let it go. I have to do something. Well, then you don't have the wisdom that's from above. James says, stop trying to be all teachers. Stop trying to climb over each other and seek to love each other and build each other up. And you will see God work in you and through you. Let me pray for us. Father, tonight, I just feel like we're to close this study by saying, help. You've been impressing upon my heart over the last few days how you are preparing your church for your return. How in 1 Peter 4, 17, you say that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. Oh, we know the book of Revelation and there's a judgment coming for the world and you're going to come and you're going to strike down the nations with the sword of your mouth. But Lord, if we are sitting here as believers saying, hurry up and do it, something's wrong. Because we're still in the age of grace. We're still in the year of the Lord's favor. We're still in the time period where Stephen prayed, Father, don't hold this against them. We're still in the time period where you're not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Oh, there's a day coming, a day of your wrath. And during the tribulation period, we see in the opening of the sixth seal that there's going to be souls under the altar who are saying, how long until you avenge our blood? But we're not in that time period now. We're still in this time period where you're using your church under your control by the power of your spirit to demonstrate your love and your grace and your mercy toward the world. But unfortunately, Lord, we have been jockeying for position, and we have been honoring and glorifying the most pompous among us. And we've called it spiritual. Lord Jesus, may the world see the meekness of Jesus, which is strength under control. And may you display your power through us in our individual lives, in our relationships, in our home, as husbands, as wives, as children. And may the evidence of your spirit within us, be the fact that we're being filled by your spirit, be lived out in such a way that people realize that person's got a new heart. That person's got a different kind of spirit within them. May that be what people see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.